Hello, I'm British sprinter Adam Jamili. And I'm GB hurdler Andrew Posse. And welcome to the very first episode of our brand new podcast, Jamili and Poz, brought to you by Eurosport. It's an Olympics podcast unlike any other. As we count down to Tokyo 2020, we'll be joined by some very special guests. And bring you all the latest news as the Games draws closer. So welcome to Jamili and Poz from Eurosport. Adam, I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast with you. I know, mate. I know, this is it's a great honour and I can't believe they've actually given us our own show. And we go way back, don't we? Over a decade now and we're about to embark on our third Olympic Games together. How do you feel about that? Mate, I've known you for too long, honestly. I feel like <laughs> I've known you for a long time. Obviously, we first properly met as juniors in the sport. What was that, like 2011, would you say? 2011, yes. Yeah. Full, around full 10 years ago. I know, it's mental. It's It's been a long time. We we were lucky enough to go to London together, many champs, go to Rio. And uh, now, yeah, we're looking at our third Olympics in Tokyo. Like, where has the time gone? I feel old. I feel old now. <laughs> How does it feel now for you? To This is your third Olympics, mate. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm looking forward to it. We're in very different circumstances, you know, compared to going back to London and I think London for us was absolutely wild for our, I mean, I think for both of us, it was our first senior champs, wasn't it? You know, so we were sold on the, on the biggest thing on the planet, you know, in a, in a home Olympics. And obviously, you know, we've accumulated a lot of experience after that in, in lots of different ways. But yeah, really looking forward to go to Tokyo. I think they're going to do an amazing job of it. Obviously really interested to see how it goes about with regards to COVID. I think. I don't know if you've read the kind of the team manual, but it looks like we're going to be getting a lot of COVID yeah. tests, which is, um, yeah, I think that's going to take up Every 90% day, of our it? time. I, I don't know, but I think we're going to be, yeah, we're going to be kept pretty busy with that. So um, definitely going to be some new things to contend with, some new challenges, some new experiences, but thoroughly looking forward to it, going into it uh, this time around, you know, completely healthy, touch wood that continues, you know, all the way through the season. But yeah, I mean, I just, I just can't wait now. We're obviously into the, the home stretch with regards to preparation, you know, how's yours going? Mate, the preparation's going well. I'm so excited to, to get cracking. I do feel a bit sorry for people if this is their first Olympics because I know the village environment and everything, you're going to have to be really sort of COVID safe and keeping your distance. And and the whole point of the Olympics is it brings so many people together. Um, but it's still going to be a fantastic sporting event. I think one that people are really going to look forward to. And, and this year has been so great for sport already. We've seen, obviously, England absolutely smashing out the Euros. Uh, can't wait for the semi-final. Obviously, massive news in track and field. We've seen world records broken before we've even got to the Games. We've had some negative sides as well with, with some positive tests. But, yeah, it's all leading up to, to something, a, a big sporting event in Tokyo, which is... a uh, is going to be super, super exciting and one not to miss. Okay, well, back to the podcast. And I'm super excited to speak to our first guest because he's been there and done it. Yeah, how do you feel about learning a little bit more about track and road cycling than Adam? Not something that you or I have ever done before, but luckily we've got the absolute world experts come and talk to us about it. So really excited now to chat to Sir Bradley Wiggins. So I'm delighted that today, Adam and I are joined by Sir Bradley Wiggins, Britain's most decorated Olympian with eight medals consisting of five golds, two silvers and a bronze, spanning a remarkable five different Olympic Games 
from Sydney 2000 to Rio 2016. Most famously, Sir Bradley is also Britain's first ever winner of the illustrious Tour de France. In 2015, he broke the prestigious hour world record with an incredible distance of over 54 and a half kilometers. His career is littered with successes that quite frankly I've found overwhelming. So you'll have to make do with those few headlines for now. And I think most importantly for uh, Adam and myself, he's an experienced podcast host on the fantastic Bradley Wiggins podcast. So we're hoping today that you're going to nurse us rookies through this. But yeah, listen, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So how have you been anyway? How are you doing? How's life? Yes, good. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, same as most people, really. It seems funny, doesn't it? The Olympics is a year late. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't carry on after Rio because I couldn't have done five years. I really couldn't. Brad, didn't you think about going for these Olympics maybe in rowing? I mean, when I retired, I'd been, I'd been on the Olympic fringes since Atlanta. You know, I was 16 in Atlanta and I'd, mm-hmm. I'd was non-traveling reserve. And then I went to everyone after that till Rio. So I was 36. I was so institutionalized. I'd been a professional athlete since I was 14, 15 my life. I didn't really have a life as a kid and I didn't know what to do with myself. And the only thing I knew was, was, was I was institutionalized to train and have a routine and have structure. And so um, I'd lost my identity a little bit in retirement and didn't know what else I wanted to do. I mean, my management put me on Radio X. I did a bit of a pilot episode for that. I hated it. I went on the jump, hated it. Picked up a bit of an injury on the jump too, right? Yeah, I broke my leg, actually, yeah. A bit of a nasty one. Yeah, yeah. I made that transition quite quickly um, into sort of TV, really. And, you know, I went from standing on the podium at Rio to three months later of being on the jump, at the top of the jump with Spencer Matthews. And... <laughs> It was it was too too quick and I didn't and while I was there I got on a rowing machine in the hotel because we were there for seven weeks and I it was the only thing that was normal to me having that structure and training and I I just in the back of my head I thought you know maybe there's a when I was doing it I wouldn't lie to myself I thought well, maybe I could go to the next Olympics really but I never really believed it I don't think at that stage but it it gave me something to say when people said what are you doing with yourself now I'd say well I'm going to try and train for the next Olympics you know and that that gave me comfort, I think, more than anything. But I mean, I was never really going to make it. It's um, it's such a tough sport, and you know, transitioning from a rowing machine to a boat is, is is another thing altogether. And and I think that just helped me while I was finding myself really, and and coming away from the elite athlete and the you know the the institutionalized athlete because you're so institutionalized, you don't realize it when you stop. And as I said, been thirty odd years riding, or twenty five years elite cycling, and. It took me a long time to, to adjust to become normal and better now, definitely. And obviously you're keeping yourself really busy with, it seems like loads of work in the media, lots of presenting. Mm. And has that managed to fill the void? Yeah, I think I just had to find myself really. I was, um, I realise now when I look back, I had quite a tough sort of childhood really. I grew up on a council estate in London, so I, I witnessed a lot of things that perhaps kids shouldn't witness. And my own father got murdered. He left home when I was six months, so I never really knew him and, it was quite tough in West London um, in the late 80s, very violent time. And I was so normalised to that, really, when I look back, that I didn't realise until I got later years and my own children that his, you know, children shouldn't be subjected to things like that. I think that was part of the adversity and that was part of the drive to get out of where I grew up, really, and became such an individual. And I was quite insecure, really, in many ways as an athlete. I had a, a veil in a front of a bit of a rock star and things like that, and I played guitar and that. And, that was all just a front, really. To It wasn't really me. It was just a, a veil that I hid behind as I got famous after 2012, really. I almost played the character even more. It, was, it became a character that I played, and that's all gone now. And I feel so separated from the athlete, or from the person I was when I was an athlete. It was like 
I excelled on the bike, but off the bike, I was very immature and very insecure. And I think that was stemmed from a lot of the trauma in my childhood that I didn't deal with, so I retired. And I know who I am now. You're so sort of um, mentally strong, or you expect to be so mentally strong when you're an athlete. You know, people say you won the Tour de France, you know, you must be so mentally strong. But it doesn't correlate into normal life. Often, I think a lot of elite athletes are very... It's in one plane, Yeah, I think a it? lot of if elite athletes are very insecure. And I was very insecure off the bike, constantly questioning myself, constantly doubting myself. But when I could execute a performance, I seemed to be able to have something that, that dialed in and was able to block all the emotion out and everything else out around it. But, but off it, I didn't know what to do with myself. So when I finished in London, I sat on this throne and just did that because there was a veil of cameras there. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how to just be normal and be adult. I was 32 with two children. And I'd have to play the fool and play a character, which is how I got through school. And that, that was the contrast. And then, obviously, the fame shot up after 2012 because I, I ended up winning Sports Personality of the Year and all that. And my, I, even that, I couldn't just... I had to be eccentric and go, got drunk that day and go on stage and, and sort of be a bit... Well, we were there, we remember. <laughs> yeah, and that, that wasn't me. You know, that, that was, that, I should have gone up and done something very more, more acceptable, but, but certain sects of the public loved that mm-hmm. and some people hated me for it. But it wasn't really me, it was just this sort of... And such a contrast to the athlete that had by then won four Olympic golds and the Tour de France... People sort of, it, it, it made people, it was, I created a perception where people sort of looked at him and sort of thought, how's this guy focus and win things like the Tour de France? And that Because I, I was almost playing like a rock star character because mm-hmm. I ended up playing on stage with Paul Weller and that. And I, and I played to that character and I played to the perception a bit more after that. And it took, it detracted from what I really was, which was the athlete I was. And, and so when I retired, I, I realized that I was playing this character, this veil, because it, it suited the sort of the rhetoric and... Um, I don't know. It was it was a desperation to be different, yeah. really, more than anything, and not be like everybody else. And it did me no good long term because it it really wasn't me. Did it make you feel more comfortable? Yeah, I don't. I didn't know who I was. I think I, I had a, a loss, a sense of um, lack of identity as a person because I'd only been this athlete since I was twelve, thirteen. I was in this system which was, you know, I was the next thing within that system, and lottery funding had just come in and. And I was just, I was ingrained and institutionalized to be the next big success. And I was, that was all I was. I didn't know who I was as a person. I didn't really have any sort of social skills and things like that off, away from it. I suppose I had to find myself when I retired and have the ability to just be an adult at times. And, you know? and, and that must be crazy as well. Like as a fully grown adult, like you said, with a family. Yeah. And now you don't have the, you know, the job, the only like life that you've known since, like you said, early teens. That, that must have been so overwhelming. Yeah. Well, you knew what I knew what I was doing every day of the year. For And I was lost without routine. I, I, I had nothing without discipline and routine. It's all I'd ever known. And I was, I was always known as a very coachable athlete. I just liked to be told what I was doing by the best coaches, and I would do it to the T. I didn't like... I didn't like this sort of directorship where you got given, you know, you're, you're in charge of your own destiny. You decide what you're doing. <laughs> I couldn't. That's where I doubted myself, you know. I'd always end up doing more. Um, I like to be told what to do and when to do it. And is this going to be enough to win me? I don't matter how hard it is, I'll do it. And so when I stopped and I left the team and that, and then I didn't have a coach anymore, I didn't have to report into anyone every other day. You know, for 20 years, someone asked me how I was on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that anymore. And then outside of that, whenever you go out in the street or things, you know, you don't hear the bad comments about you, that people that don't like you because they don't come up to you and say anything. But most of the time, people come and blow smoke up your ass and they're... You know, you're over their hero and you're a legend. And you get told that for 15, 10, 15 years within cycling and that magnifies after 2012. It, it just, it does you no good 
you don't know who you are as a person if and then you kind of think if people knew what you were really like you know and and actually what you really like is probably incredibly selfish self-centered you're in, living in a bubble because you're an elite athlete probably quite insecure mm -hmm. as a person the only identity and your only confidence comes from the athlete then this persona that you are so we go or whatever but actually when you're at home you're still the same person it's very lonely existence and i didn't enjoy sport after 2012 it was just I, there was a, a set of precedent of winning and it was just you know winning was the norm winning was the standard and if we didn't everything was a failure so every time we won after that it was just a relief there was no satisfaction, you know. In Rio, we crossed the line. I was like, "That's it, done." It, it takes it takes the joy out of the thing that you love, doesn't it? Well, I um, I gave up my happiness to be great at something, and that's the only way I can put it. I didn't enjoy the last ten years of my career, or the last eight years. Maybe question as well whether it was all worth it. Wow. Um, it was just. Um, but now I look back now, and I'm I'm starting to become a bit more proud of not 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 the success I had, but I think. Knowing who I am as a person now, I, 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 I realised that I've always been fundamentally that person. I just didn't know it. And the ability to, to focus on a process, I think that was, that's, you know, you're nothing without a process, a four-year cycle. And the ability to apply yourself to a training programme day in, day out and graft for that. And the end result is that you're the best athlete and you win a gold medal. It's not the gold medals that, you know, I, I, I need for my identity and walk around and sort of, do you know who I am? I'm, you know, I'm, I've got Olympic gold. It's the it's the, the ability to to adapt and to apply yourself to a training program over four years, which I think you can take into any walk of life after that. So I'm starting a degree this September to hopefully become a clinical psychologist in the next nine years. I'd love to work in sport and work with other athletes and do like Steve Peters has done. I really have a fascination with the, the, the sort of minds of athletes and. You know, ego is everything as an athlete, isn't it? And everyone has one. And you hide behind that when you're on the cameras. And you have to because you don't want to give any, way, any weaknesses to your opponents. But behind it, as you know, then it's, it, it can be a very lonely existence when you're in injury, when things haven't gone right. And defeat, failure is, is quite hard to deal with as an athlete. And the, the constant pressure of people behind you pushing you all the time, you know, other people willing to take your place. And then, you know, obviously a lot of talk about mental health now within athletes and that it's that's that's the times when it, you can really struggle as an athlete is, is those. And, you know, you, you can prepare for that and you can you can you can try and deal with failure and try and move on and be more successful after that. But dealing with success is just as hard. There's no there's no textbook that because because with this country and how institu you know, institution the Olympics is, everyone becomes a household name when you win Olympic gold and dealing with that after is just as hard. Did anyone, did anyone prepare you for that? No, no, you can't. Because my whole life was mapped out up to 2012 to the 1st of August. And I, I won the Tour de France. Ten days later, I won the Olympics in London. And then I didn't have a training program after that. So I was left to my own devices for four months. And that's when I was at my worst, you know, because that's when you go back and be a normal person. And you spent so long as an athlete at altitude and all this that you're not a cyclist anymore. And yeah, I mean, you can't wait to get back to training then because that's what gives you confidence and things. And it was a funny old time. And um, I, I think a lot of athletes go through that. I think I probably just think mine's more well documented. Or I, I think I, because it is documented, I can go back and look at it more. You know, it's everything's on YouTube and things like that. So I have access to look at myself, whereas a lot of people in normal, everyone goes through it in their life. They just, it's just not as documented and they haven't lived under the spotlight. But I mean, there's so many athletes. I mean, Mark Lowe's Francis went through it after Athens and 
I became good friends with Philip Sadu back after Beijing Olympics, mm-hmm. and he kind of went off the radar, and he was incredibly intelligent. Oh, yeah. I was wondering whatever happened to him now. And, um, he's, he's in Australia, I think, now. Is he? Yeah. I see the odd update, but he's, he's a wonderful mm-hmm. bloke. He was a great I, I grew up near Birmingham, so when I was a, a kid, I kind of trained in a similar gym, and immediately, you know, he'd look after everyone. I, I just thought he was an amazing bloke. And then as I got older and on the circuit, you know, as, as a teenager, kind of walking around, like not really knowing who to speak to, I remember him just grabbed me one day, you know, and I still didn't even know him particularly well and just being such a great bloke. But as you said, I think he's um, he's living a bit of a different life now, but I, I think he's in Australia. But it's, um, I, you know, obviously he had a lot of pressures to deal with. And again, everyone else gets to deal with their issues, you know, privately. Whereas when you're in the spotlight and you're a winner, it's all, it's mm. all public. And if everyone wants to take a pop yeah. at you, there's another 60 million people in the country that mm. can also add a comment to it despite knowing nothing about it, which, you know, which is just wild. I think that's getting harder for athletes now. Everything's under the spotlight even more day to day now. And um, it's a a lot different to sort of, of, I mean, I went to Sydney Olympics and I could get on the the bus there at the start. And I mean, it was like Colin Jackson, all these people I used to watch on TV, you know. It was just a great time seeing Linford Christie and all these people there. And we didn't have social media then. So it's such a different time now for athletes. You mentioned the work as a, as a psychologist in the future. Is it on the performance end that you want to look at it? Or is it actually, you know, you mentioned your your childhood and seeing some of the, you know, the rough things that you did. Yeah. Is it the the human side of an athlete that you would like to work with more? And, you know, as you said, you were kind of institutionalized from a teenager. Is it is it that that you want to work more on and actually help, you know, athletes, for example, have a better experience as, you know, as themselves as a human outside of sport? Yeah. I think it's it's a case of probably building more on the person away from sport, so they're yeah. better equipped to 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 manage their emotions and things when they're racing. Because there's there's no you've got the coaches and then you've got the sort of performance team above that and the people the selectors and stuff, and that's all great when when you're the, you're going well and you're getting selected and the coaches are happy with you, but there's there's no intermediaries no sort of welfare we're certainly within cycling anywhere there's no welfare it's just a middle line where there's a protection for the athletes and and um, and i don't think there's anyone in between there that can just say look guys as a person this guy needs a break he needs four weeks away or she needs four weeks away from the sport athletes go until they break and then you don't see him again and it's very hard to come back and the fear of of standing down and losing your position to someone else is is what keeps people going but then Subsequently, if you don't make selection and you retire, then obviously you've got to deal with that in your normal life. And there's no sort of exit strategy for athletes as well, where they get looked after into retirement for at least first two years and helped with things like tax returns. Have you got enough now to pay your mortgage? Have you got, you know, a bit like when you were at school when you went and saw the sort of careers person? You don't have that in sport. It's just like, there you go, thanks for coming, and off you go and go and do League of Their Own or something. <laughs> and I think that's quite, it's quite hard. And I've kind of got thoughts about how to sort of set up a more platform where there's a bit more protection for for certainly the athletes that um, on a mental health basis. It's it's. I remember. I know he won't mind me mentioning it, but I remember chatting to Dwayne Chambers in in 2013, and he was like, "We just we just won the bronze medal in the relay," and he was like, "Do you know what? That's it. I'm done now. I can end on a high." And then we got disqualified like about an hour later, yeah. and. Five years later, he was still competing, chasing that, chasing that medal that never came. So, 
mentally just brutal. Yeah. Yeah. It's knowing what's enough, isn't it? Everyone always talks about the next thing. And this is one of the issues that I have is that when you have a big success, people don't really stop and enjoy that. They start talking about the next thing. And I imagine in your career, Brad, when I looked, you know, at, at all your achievements or whatever, like it was just relentless. It's just one after another. And did you feel like mm. you ever actually got to take the time to be like, you know, what? I've just invested, you know, every single day of the last four years into this Olympics. Like, why am I being pushed into this next thing? And why are people telling me mm. I've got to do this TV show or do that whilst I'm famous and I've got to make, you know, all this kind of kind of nonsense? Yeah. I mean, I think you feel that there's a there's a need to do that for after career. You know, you're sort of setting up and. I tried to pull out of sports personality in 2012 because it was all getting on top of me by then and I got pushed into, um, I'm going to have to do it because it's going to look bad if you don't do it. And everything I seemed to do amplified the fame of some sort, but it was, it was, it was getting out of hand and I was getting a bit out of control and losing myself. I tried to decline the knighthood um, and I got Dave Brailsford told me, you know, you've got to take it because Seb Coe's got involved and, you know, it's, you'll, you'll be disrespecting the country, the papers will get hold of it. And everything, everything was like that. There was no choice. And so I probably tried to refrain and, and, and pull back from all that sort of stuff, but got pushed into doing it anyway. And, in, and the way of coping to doing it and going walking through walls was to start drinking and playing the fool more. And all that was a reflection of, of not really wanting to be there. I, I was losing myself by then. And 2013 was particularly hard for me. But I, I had a choice. I could carry on descending and spiraling like I was into 2013 or go back to the person who you were most comfortable with that you'd known for such a long time, which was just go back and be an elite athlete. So I shaved my head, took the hair off and went back to doing what I did best. And that, that was the sort of, it was, I was unhappy from that point on for the next six, seven years doing it. But that was the closest thing I knew to happiness and comfort. And it was easier being that person and winning because at least then you weren't getting sort of harassed and having a go at I didn't know that. And everything I did after that, you know, I won a world title. But we, we you know, there's no emotion involved of it. It was just process. And, okay, that I, I, I adopted a life of being, it's like a religion, being an elite athlete. You know, you have to just live like a monk. And, and that was the com most comfortable area for me to live my life. And I knew if I did that, I would win. So I won a world title. I did the hour record. I mean, 1.2 million. It was pay-per-view, the hour record on Sky. And wow. I remember finishing and just thinking, right, well, that's that done. There's no adulation. It was just done. And it was for everyone else. And it was just put smiles on. And then I obviously went to Rio. I went won the Olympic gold again there, but with the team squad. But I remember crossing the line there and thinking, oh, well, that's that done. Because <laughs> I always wanted to win five golds. And I remember that, that was like, I don't know, it didn't matter if it was four or five, really. Because the only reason I said five is because when I went to Sydney, Steve Redgrave won five. And that was quite... I remember thinking when I was 20, God, that's what I'd love to do that, you know, not realising how miserable it would be doing it. And then even then I thought, you know, should I go on for another four years because I don't know what else to do? There was a fear among, within me that I'd tried to be, or what I thought was normal, which was, wasn't normal at all, was post-2012 and going and living a normal life. But that made me so unhappy because obviously I was playing a different person. There was a fear when I stopped that oh, I'm going to go back to that. So it was, it was, I was quite, I was quite messed up really in many ways, you know, it's not a sob story and I'm not moaning. I, I wouldn't change a thing because it's made me the person I am now. You wouldn't change anything? No, I wouldn't change a thing. No. If you could tell, if you could tell, if you could tell a 19 year old brat, like the journey, you just keep it all the same. Yeah. Because ultimately it's, you, it's what makes you the person you are now. And it's, it's, and as an athlete, I was a complete selfish and had to be. 
because you have to be and you're so self-absorbed and you can't do anything you know for yourself everyone does things for you and the better you get more people do more stuff for you and that's quite a dangerous thing to take into normal life afterwards expecting people to know you are or expecting things to be done for you and you know I got to the point now where I just see it as a real privilege to still be involved in the sport that I love and be able to commentate on it and I don't take it for granted for one minute but a lot of athletes struggle don't they when they retire because they're so used to I mean funny enough actually it's just reminded me of something is when I won the Tour de France on the last day we had a, we had a bus that takes us to the start each day our own bus with the nine riders and it was showers and everything Maurice Green got on our bus on the last day. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'd watched, yeah. Because Maurice Green was doing a little show for Eurosport then called the Maurice, Maurice Green on tour or something. It was some, um, <laughs> but I can remember, remember him getting on the bus and I remember going, Maurice Green, baby. Because <laughs> he, he used to do that strut down the, the, the yeah, it's and I told him to do the walk, you know, the pre-walk that he used to do. And he did it for us. And he was a lovely guy. He knew nothing about cycling. Yeah, I just I, I just saw someone who was an immense sprinter, and you know he was at Sydney when I was there, and and twelve years later he's on our bus at the Tour de France, and you know slightly overweight and you know retired, but complete contradiction to the persona and the ego he had on track. He was the most humble, nicest, gentlest guy away into retirement, and and just very modest, more in awe of us, even though he didn't know anything about us, and we were in awe of him because he was you know. 100 meter sprinters, you know, there's particularly the gold medalist, you know, going back to Ben Johnson and you grow up, it's the blue ribbon event of the Olympics, isn't it? It was, it was lovely to see someone who, who was, we were so in awe of be so, so modest and so humble. You, you mentioned a lot of athletes. Mm. Are you a fan? I mean, I grew up watching all that, you know, like, so 1992 was when I first watched my proper Olympics, and Linford won. And Linford was from this, you know, I'm from Labrick Grove, Kilburn, and he's from West London. So he was the local, you know, everyone. And we used to train at Paddock and Recreation Ground in PE at school. And Daley Thompson was training there one day. This was in the early 90s. And we were sort of shouting to him, Daley or Daley or something like that. And he got the arse of us. He was a bit contentious, Daley, wasn't he? He's never really <laughs> changed. They, they, were, they were household names, but they were the people next door as well which was great in the 90s, you know, Colin Jackson and all that. You know, you'd see them around, walking around and stuff. In, they lived in the UK most of the time. And, you know, Sally Gunner won there. And, um, and then I, I can remember watching Atlanta Olympics and sitting up too early in the hours of the morning, watching Michael Johnson break the 200, you know, beating Frankie Fredericks and Atto Bolden. And, you know, it's, um, and then being out there, you know, with Dwayne Chambers in Sydney and watching and seeing Linford in a nightclub afterwards and, he was coaching at that time, Darren Campbell and those guys, wasn't he? And um, Sydney was amazing, you know, to be in Sydney Olympics at 19 years of age, coming from Labrick Grove. That was quite something, you know. And um, seeing, yeah, Cathy Freeman in the Olympic Village. And you're an athlete and you, you turn up at the Olympics and you're going to the Olympics and you leave London and all the British Airways staff are, you know, in awe of you because you've got a tracksuit on and stuff. But for those first few ones, I don't think it ever left me, actually. Don't it ever left me. Anytime I went into an Olympic village and went into the dining hall, I felt so small and the least bit of an athlete compared to everyone else, particularly as a cyclist because we had such low body fat and we didn't look like athletes. But, you know, I remember seeing um, uh, Kobe Bryant in the dining hall in Beijing getting mobbed by 50 or 60 people. Yeah, it was just, it was incredible. And I even, even by the time I got to London Olympics, you know, um, and it was bizarre, like all these people coming over asking us for selfies and stuff. Because you see that quite often in the athletes' village, you know, other athletes that 
feel like I used to feel my first one. They're like fans, you know, and it's 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 it's, it's an amazing thing to be at the Olympics. That was like us. That was us. Yeah. That was like you. I, I would never have done okay. that. I was walking was around like just like, I would like to ask, but I'm, I'm not going to. I'm just going to go and, go and get my food. I remember following Serena Williams for about five minutes and then thinking, like, <laughs> I can't ask it. No, just her own. Like, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And there's nothing like it. There's no experience like it. And, and unless you've been in the Olympic Village and got into that time, you can't explain it to your people back home what it's like. You can tell them the size no, of it. Can you imagine this dining was like three football pitches or this or that. But you can't ever... You know, talk, explain to someone what that's like. Like queuing up to get your pass scanned to go into the dining or being behind someone, you know, that you only ever see on the telly, you know. Probably some handball player from Croatia who's like 10 foot tall, you know, something like that. I, I remember coming out and I, I just remember being like, yeah, and I saw like all the USA basketball team, Kobe Bryant was there, all coming out at McDonald's, all had massive like plates of this. Everyone's like, that didn't happen. But it, it, it's, it's so bizarre. It's like a, a look behind the kind of, the TV screen and you probably see people as, as normal people for the first time. Yeah. But as an athlete, it's, it's, it's just, um, yeah, you just can't explain it. I remember, I remember in um, Beijing where we were staying in the village next door, USA was like, had their camp. And I'd see this American 200 meter sprinter every day coming back before competition with McDonald's. It was called Wallace Spearman. Do you remember him? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. I know Wallace. He yeah, was yeah. having like McDonald's pre-competition. He had the worst diet and, the slowest walk as well, every day with his laundry bag, you know. <laughs> yeah, just amazing, you know. Yeah. You know, when I talk about, like, being unhappy the last years of my career and everything, whenever I talk about the Olympics, it's always, you know, with a smile on my face because they were, they were probably the best, the best memories is always the Olympics being representing GB. The moment you work for. I mean, that's the way it should be, shouldn't it? It's just a shame that if so much that you have to do in order to get there is filled with, with unhappiness in, in some circumstances. Yeah, but I think, I mean, being an elite athlete is horrible. It's not. You can't say, oh, I enjoy it, I love it. You don't. It's horrible and I hate <laughs> most moments of it, getting up and training. And You know, that's why it's hard. Because if, it, if you loved it and everyone, people that look up to you and want to do, I'd love to do what they will be able to do that, they love it as well, but they can't do it. It's because you can do the stuff that everyone hates to do, which is getting up in the morning, sacrifice and all that. But you've got to do it like you love it. And that's the contradiction in it. And they're just like party lines that get thrown around. You know, what would you say to young kids that want to get involved? You're going to have to love it. It'll be horrible. It'll be brutal. It's cutthroat. <laughs> People that you think you're mates aren't your mates. It's hard. And it's, you know, you might come out the other end pretty broken. And what for? Gold medal. Yeah, it's great. But just, you know, make sure you get some help away from it. Someone who's got your back. You know, someone you're not paying that's going to say, right, do you know what? I actually think you're becoming a bit of a at the moment, if I'm honest. And I think you can, you know, this is, you're probably getting a bit too carried away. And all those things, you know. Sorry, this isn't the swearing podcast, is it? <laughs> Did you have many friends or people outside of the sport yeah. that you felt like you could almost take refuge with? Not like, really. Or were you literally just so entrenched in cycling? No. Because to me, that's so no, important. No, not really. I mean, that's it. To be able to change the frequency and yeah. actually just saying, yeah. do you know what, I, I'm completely saturated with this training or whatever it is at this stage. I just want to go and do something completely different mm. for, you know, even just an afternoon. Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't many like that. And there's, there's not really. And, you know, your friends and all that change over the years anyway. But um, it was hard to become friends with me because it was, you know, anyone I met, they want to chat to me. You know, oh, you're that cyclist, aren't you? And then you become friends with people that not really hangers on, but they, they don't really know you. It's very hard to become, have any normal life as an elite athlete because it's so it's so abnormal 
you know, so like, you know, don't have Christmas days, you can't do what everyone else does, you're out training Christmas day, boxing day, school holidays, you know, I had two young kids, school holidays start and I'd go off for three weeks to an altitude camp. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's brutal. Um, and then I'm going to say, I'm not complaining at all. You know, it's, it's, that's what it's like. You know, you, you think it's life and death as an athlete and you think that you've got the worst job in the world and it's such <laughs> that you can't go with your mates to the pub or whatever. It's actually, you could be far worse. I mean, you could be in the army, you know, stationed abroad and not seeing your kids for nine months at a time. And you, if you forget that sometimes, you get so self-absorbed. And so, to, but you have to be like that. You know, and you have to realise and just come back, step back every now and again and realise it's a real privilege what you're doing. It's bloody hard. People will give up their right arm to do what they think that you, the life you have. And I know it's not that, but it's just someone behind the scenes reminding you that, you know, you're doing it for your family and stuff. You do it for you as a person. This is, you know, this shows that you can walk into another area of your life afterwards and get a job and show you can apply yourself to something and, you know, not give in at the slightest struggle and things like that. And they're all good life lessons for later on when you retire. Do you know what? Interestingly, I don't know if it's, I feel like there's probably fewer injuries in cycling compared to athletics. I mean, in athletics, it's such a huge component of what we do. And I don't know if it was the same for Adam, but I mean, I found when I had a couple of like big injuries and I was out for an entire season or, you know, six, nine months often, that was the time that actually kind of rebalanced me and and made me think, do you know what? I do actually really enjoy doing this. I do feel really lucky to be able to train and to compete because especially in athletics with injury, it gets taken away from every athlete at some point. Almost, I don't know any athlete that hasn't, you know, missed a season or at least a big chunk of a year through injury is that, you know, so there's almost like these unplanned breaks in athletics. And I think the other good thing for us is that there's loads of different ways to do it. I mean, because there are, I don't know, 10,000 tracks in the UK compared to maybe one high-class velodrome, you can work outside of the system. And if your results are good enough, you'll get you'll get picked again. But I guess that's not the case in cycling. No, no, it's not. Um, you can go and ride for a professional team in Europe and then drop back in. So which, you can, which you did, right? Yeah, I mean, after Beijing, I was struggling to pay the rent and the mortgage, sorry, and um, my two kids and stuff. So I thought I'd better go and try and earn some money, you know. Um, I was 28. I'd won three Olympic golds, and I th- so I went off to join an American team, and I did the Tour de France along Armstrong. And I ended up getting fourth in the Tour de France, which then catapulted me onto Team Sky, um, and that wasn't meant to happen. I was just going to go and fill some years and make some money to come back for London. And then from that, I ended up riding the road events in London and not the track events, and won the time trial there. It just—it's it, funny that you kind of—I went something I went to do to to improve my endurance and things to come back to the track to be a better athlete and have a mental break and earn some money. I ended up excelling that, uh, then causing myself more problems by ending up becoming, that's what ended up winning the tour in 2012 and stuff, you know? So it was, you know, just, it was a way of improving performance, but I got successful. You know, it's a bit like when Mo's gone to do the marathon, you know, and um, um, it's that that kind of transition, all of us of you to come back and and doing better in the event that you, rather than just doing the same thing year in, year out, you know, it was a way of sort of looking to get some more performance gains, you know? But I ended up staying at the road and, doing what I did and then uh, retired from the road two years out from Rio and went back to the track. So I, I went away at the end of Beijing with a view to come back to London. I, I was away for eight years because I got good at it. Which did you prefer? Oh, I don't know really. I think the track. Because they seem very different. From the outside, they seem incredibly different. Yeah, they are. I mean, one race is four minutes long. The other one's three weeks. <laughs> so, and there's a, you know, there's a, physiologically as well you know I, I won the tour at 68 kilos and three percent body fat 
And in Rio, I was 85 kilos. One's just a, a sprint endurance event and the other one's, you know, yeah, you just become emaciated and, you know, live in altitude most of the time because you have to train altitude constantly. It's no, it's no life, I tell you. Brad, I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately we've run out of time. So thank you so much for chatting to us today. It's been a real pleasure. No, thanks for your time. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for having me on. I mean, wow, I don't really know where to start Start with that, Adam. I wasn't expecting a lot of that, you know, from Brad. But just the honesty was was just phenomenal, wasn't it? I think if anyone ever wanted an insight into uh, into his mind, you know, they certainly got it there. What, what did you make of that? I wasn't really expecting that to hear that maybe he wasn't actually enjoying his time for a lot of the time, except he, he's talking about his Olympics and he loved that experience. But can you can you relate to that about not enjoying your sport? Would you think you could sacrifice and put into what you do if you weren't enjoying what you do every day? Or Because I don't think I could. I think we sacrifice too much and we train too hard that if I wasn't enjoying doing this, I just wouldn't do it. So I don't know what interest to see what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think listening to it, there were definitely uh, a lot of strands that I could really relate to. You know, I think it definitely showed a different side to sport. And I think even to, to you and I, you know, we know so much about it and we have all our own experiences. But obviously, you know, we watched him from the outside. I mean, we were at the Olympics when he was he was doing great things in uh, London and Rio, you know. But to to hear his insight and actually what he was thinking and going through during that time. He said he was playing a character, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, it, it just, wow, it was just overwhelming, wasn't it? And I think for me, I definitely haven't had the same experiences. I've, I have undoubtedly had snippets of it, you know. But I have to say, I think I do enjoy what I do. Training for me... I certainly wouldn't say is, is as much of a chore as I think, you know, Brad kind of um, found it at times. And I think the most important thing for me listening to him was probably realizing that the pressure cooker that he was in and the way that his life changed after 2012, you know, is something that obviously, I don't know about you, but, you know, I can't relate to. And it definitely sounded like he was speaking very specifically about that period with a lot more strength, really, you know, than, than his earlier years. Um, although obviously he gave us an an incredible insight into his whole career, but they yeah. definitely sounded tough. What I found interesting was just that he just, his life after sport and maybe not really having a plan and from going from such a routine and, and knowing what you're doing every day, having that sort of plan to, to going from that to suddenly nothing and how he adjusted and how he adapted to that. And I know we're both getting on now, like we're no longer spring chickens. I don't know. Have you ever thought about life after sport? Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I think that was super interesting what he was saying because he obviously only knew one life from the age of, I think he said 13, 14 almost. Um, both of us, you know, went to university and kind of kept a slightly different life in parallel to athletics. And, you know, obviously I mentioned it in the podcast. I think injury in our sport and in our careers has meant that we've had to think a little bit more seriously about other things as well as, as well as our training at times. But, you know, it's definitely a little bit daunting, isn't it? You know, we have such a, a niche specific life at the moment. I think you can only be prepared to a certain extent. And whilst I felt that I was doing a good job on that, it's um, it's definitely daunting, you know. And I hope that I'll be a little bit more prepared than obviously Brad was. You know, it sounded like it was a very tough time for him to have to kind of rediscover himself as well. Yeah, uh, for me, I don't know. I'm just looking forward to enjoying all the foods when I finish. That's that's it. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, as long as I can enjoy that's, all. That's game plan. That's the that's the plan. Enjoying all the foods and uh, yeah, living my life, man. 
So I guess that's it for the first edition of the Jamelian Poz podcast from Eurosport. We've got a series of these to bring to you before we fly to Tokyo, so don't forget to give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Check out Eurosport.com for all the latest news, views and interviews ahead of the Olympics. And we'll be back next time with an absolute cracker when we're joined by British running legend Paula Radcliffe. Yeah, she's an absolute icon in our sport, so cannot wait to hear what she's got to say. We'll catch you next time. Hey.